This message is brought to you by Moira Pentecostal Church. We hope that it will encourage, challenge, and inspire you in your walk with God. John chapter 20, and uh, reading from verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Amen. The events that we just read there took place on that first, what we would call Easter uh, Sunday morning, that first resurrection day. And it came completely unexpected. None of his disciples or none of the followers of Christ had ever dreamt of such a thing, even though he had told them it would happen, but they were dull of hearing. And had we read verse 9 of that chapter, it says, For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so when it happened, it was a great shock and surprise to them, a wonderful thing, but fearful yet at the same time. Now, if you were to follow the events of the resurrection, that particular first day, if you were to follow the events uh, through the four Gospels, uh, according to Westcott, you'd find it would be roughly like this. Very early in the morning, probably about 5 a.m., certainly before the sun rose, Mary Magdalene with Mary, the mother of James, and Salome made their way to the tomb. It was still dark, but dawn was fast approaching. And Mary Magdalene went on ahead of the others, and she found the tomb open, and then she ran to tell Peter and John. And then sometime afterwards, about 5.30, the other woman arrived. The sun was arisen by this time. And they saw an angel who sent a message to his disciples. And then about 6 a.m., another group arrived at the tomb, among whom was Joanna. And there appeared to them, was it like two young men? Although they were angels, but like two young men. And they gave them words of comfort and instruction. And then about 6.30, Peter and John came to the tomb. You remember how they came running to the tomb? Because Mary had told them the tomb was empty. And how that John had outrun Peter, and he got there first. And he looked in, but he didn't go in. And then how that Peter, coming charging on, he just pushed him aside and he went right in, which would be typical of Peter. Now Mary Magdalene was with them at that time, but she didn't go back with them. She lingered and stayed. And she saw two angels, and about that same time, the other woman delivered their news to the other disciples. Then about 7 a.m., the Lord appeared himself to Mary Magdalene. And not long afterwards, he revealed himself 
it would seem, to the company of women who were by this time returning from the tomb. And they were charged by the Lord with a message to his disciples to meet him in Galilee. And then later on that evening, there were other appearances, but particularly this one here that we have just read together. The disciples and others were gathered together in this room for fear of the Jews. And they were behind these closed doors. And there was 10 of the disciples. Uh, obviously, Judas had went out and hung himself. And Thomas, for whatever reason, and we don't know why, but he just wasn't there that evening. In fact, he had to be there the next Sunday evening. But he wasn't there that night. And he really missed an exciting and wonderful experience. Now, these were men that Jesus wanted to change the world with. These were his disciples, but right now they're hiding behind closed doors. They're frightened. They're scared. They would become great apostles, mighty men of God, miracle workers. But right at the moment, it doesn't look like these would be the pillars of the early church. They're afraid for their lives. They were powerless. They felt helpless and even hopeless. They had figured that the authorities that put Jesus to death would come and put them to death also, which is why they were hiding. So it's not a very encouraging picture. Sure it's not. I mean, these were the hand-picked ones that Jesus chose to lead his church. And yet here they are, frightened, hiding away, shut off behind closed doors. I wonder how many believers are hiding with a closed door in their life. Some part of their life has been shut off, closed down, locked away. Perhaps they're struggling with a bitter disappointment or a failed opportunity or maybe a secret sin or maybe a guilt about something or a terrible fear or an inferiority feeling or a feeling of rejection. But something or other in their life is behind a closed door. And it's shut off. And they're hemmed in by it. But isn't it wonderful that God just doesn't see us as we are, but also what we can become in His Son, Jesus Christ. God can see us differently. He can see what we become in Jesus, His Son. So here in verse 19... Here comes Jesus. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood in the midst. No knock at the door. No invitation, not standing saying, Plan I please come in. Suddenly, one second he's not there, the next second he's right there, standing in their midst, behind that closed door. He didn't even need an invitation. He just came and stood in the midst. And when he stood in their midst, he gave them four things that would change their lives forever. They would never, ever, ever be the same after this encounter. This was going to trigger four things in their lives that would change them forever. From this moment, 
And especially in just a few weeks from this moment, they will become bold, fearless, confident, effective Christians. That's what they would become. So what are the four things that Christ has given them and Christ has given us, His church? The four things are these. First of all, He gave them a new peace. In verse 19 and verse 21, He said it twice. He said, peace be unto you. Now this peace they never had before. This would be a peace that would work under pressure. All of us, when things are going well, when things are on the up, when there's nothing bad on the horizon, all of us are peaceful. But when things go wrong, as they often do, when a crisis comes, do we still claim that God can give us a peace in our hearts in the midst of all of that? And this is what Christ was talking about. These were men who had spiritually, emotionally collapsed under pressure. When they saw Jesus on the cross, it almost finished them. They couldn't handle it. They ran and hid. No peace there. But here they are, and Christ is giving them a new peace. And so he comes and he says, peace be unto you, shalom. An ordinary greeting. He had greeted in that way many times before. Peace be to you. But this time was different. This time, he was giving them a peace that they never had before. This time, what he had said before was now going to become a reality. You remember before, he said to them in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the word gives do I give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So that peace that he was talking about then, they're going to get it now. And it's going to be a reality to them. And it's going to work in their lives. It's going to change them forever. And the Lord wants us to have that same peace. Not a peace when you feel good, when everything's going well, but when you feel bad and things are at their worst and your world is turned upside down, in the midst of all of that, God can give you a peace in your heart. You may not know how it's going to pan out. You don't need to know that right now. All you need to know is, the Lord is with me. I know His peace in my heart. Whatever happens, He's with me. And He'll be with me through all what I'm going through. He'll be with me every step of the way. When you know that, you've got the peace of God in your heart. Isaiah 26 and 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Whose mind, whose imagination, 
is stayed on you. Isn't it a fact, <coughs> excuse me, that in the midst of trouble, our imagination runs riot, isn't it? Doesn't it? You know, your son or your daughter, they're out late at night, they're in the car, they've just passed their driving test, they said they'd be in at 10, now it's 11 o'clock, and you're panicking. And they haven't rung. And your imagination starts to play up, doesn't it? And you can see them over a hedge and the car upturned in a field. And suddenly your mind is just running riot. Your imagination is just going crazy. And that's when you need to be stayed on him. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind, whose imagination, whose thought patterns is stayed on you. Is fixed on you. Because he trusts in you. In Philippians chapter 4, we know it well, but it bears reading. Verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Mm. Notice he says your hearts and minds. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, this is what you fix on. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. These things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and a God of peace will be with you. Meditate. Fix your mind upon Get your mind stayed upon these things, Paul is saying. And so he appears to them, and twice he says, Peace be to you. Now, he knew them well. He knew their superstitious superstitions. Their first thought would have been, It's a ghost. How could a human being suddenly not be there and then be there? How could that happen? It must be a ghost. So what does he do? He shows them his hands and his side. And he says, peace be to you. He lets them see how real he is. Not a ghost, not an apparition, not a specter, but a real living Lord Jesus Christ, risen resurrected and there he stood in them in the midst and of course when he said and did all of that obviously Thomas wasn't there and so they get back and report and in verse 24 just following from there in John 20 now Thomas called the twin one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. <laughs> and I, I could imagine at that moment, it doesn't say, but I can imagine at that moment, when they said, Thomas, you're not going to believe this. We were standing in that room. You weren't there. And suddenly Jesus appeared. We've seen the Lord. 
And I can imagine Thomas standing saying, how do you know it was the Lord? How do you know it wasn't a ghost of your imagination? But Thomas, he showed us his hands and his side. It's real, he's real. We saw him with our own eyes. And I can imagine that's when Thomas said, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He was a skeptic, wasn't he? He wanted proof. He wanted evidence. Didn't matter what they told him. I want to see for myself. I know you fellas. You're a bit excitable and emotional. But me, I'm not like that. I'm logical. I'm rational. I have to see it to believe it. Unless I see, in fact, unless I touch, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then they said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. How did Jesus know that? Hmm. Wonder was he standing unseen in that room whenever Thomas says, I will not believe. He certainly quoted him, didn't he? So he said, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. Huh. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. That takes faith, doesn't it? And we have the faith to believe that he's real, that he's alive. So he gave them a new peace. He gave them a new purpose. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. See, they had temporarily lost their purpose for living. All of their hopes and dreams, everything they had pinned their hopes and dreams on was gone. The cross ended that. It was the last thing they ever expected. They believed he was the Messiah, but the Messiah wouldn't end up on a Roman cross as a criminal. The Messiah would come strong. He would raise up a kingdom. He would kick out those pagan Romans, the oppressors. And they had lost their sense of purpose. You know, sometimes you lose your sense of purpose if you're not careful. John the Baptist lost his, didn't he? Remember when he was in prison, he sent the disciples to Jesus, are you he that should come or do we look for another? Did I miss God? Did I get this right? Did I hear from heaven? Was all the effort I put in, John, was all the effort I put in for nothing? Was I an idiot? But Jesus sent word back. Show them what I've been doing. Tell them what you've seen. Sometimes you can lose your purpose. 
So Christ gives them a new purpose. They would not spend the rest of their lives behind closed doors. Never again would they be closet Christians. They were going to have to come out of the closet. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now they would be his ambassadors, his witnesses, his hands, his feet, his voice. They would go forth in his name with his authority, with righteousness and boldness. No longer would they be thinking about which thrones they were going to possess. All that stuff was gone. Now they were going to be working for the king and his kingdom. Now they had purpose. Now they understood the role. Now they would blaze a trail for Christ. Nothing or no one would stop them now. Because they had a new purpose. Everybody needs a purpose in life, don't they? Do you ever ask yourself, do you ever stop and ask yourself, what is my purpose in life? All of these new atheists, so-called, the doctrines of this world and all them, the spread in the message is there's no purpose in life. There's no point to it. So you might as well just do what you want to do because it'll soon be over and there's no purpose to it. There's no future beyond it. So just get on doing what you ever, whatever you want to do. What a miserable life that would be. God has given us purpose in life. There's a reason for our being. Yes, we just have a very short time in all of eternity on this earth. A very short time. Just a breath, in fact. But there's a purpose in it. And while we are on this earth, we need to discover our purpose for being here. And then live in that purpose. Fulfill that purpose. Do what God has called us to do. In the grand scheme of things, where do I fit in? Did you ever ask yourself that? Am I just a nobody? Am I so insignificant that I don't really matter or count? Because that's a big life in the pit of hell. Paul said collectively we are the body of Christ, but individually we are members in particular. He gives the illustration of the body. Every bodily part is important. Now again, the evolutionists are saying that our appendix and so forth is just a vestige of our evolutionary journey. And it's no longer of any use. Well, they're discovered now that it is of use. After all these years of people believing that big lie, they discover, yes, it is of use. God put it there for a reason. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the body of Christ... He says, we are the body of Christ collectively, but individually we're members in particular. Every one of us has a reason for being in the body of Christ. He said, every joint supplies. So we're all interconnected. And we're all supplying something to the whole body. Do you see yourself in the body of Christ? Do you see yourself as a joint that's supplying as a part that's meant to be. Because you ought to. You need to. Because you are. And if you don't see that. And you don't understand that. You're not functioning right as a believer. 
You need to say, I am part of the body of Christ. What is my role? How do I function? Christ was going to send these men and women out to do something and to be something. And they had peace now. And they had purpose. But they still lacked one thing. They needed power. They needed power. And so he gives them a new power. Verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now remember their condition at this point in the story. They're despondent, they're disheartened, they're dispirited, they're even depressed. And yet, he comes along and he breathes into them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 2, 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The word breath there and the word breath here means the same thing, spirit, basically. The breath of God in the first creation meant physical life and the breath of Christ in the new creation means spiritual life. He was imparting a dimension of spiritual life into them that they never had before. A new power was going to be theirs. Now this was a taster for what was to come in less than six weeks' time at Pentecost. Something wonderful was going to happen at Pentecost where they would be filled with the Holy Spirit and they would receive this power. At his ascension, he said to them, go and wait for the promise of the Father. And you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, not just as a breath, but as a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all of the house where they were sitting. And suddenly, they were endued with a new power. Do you know the first thing he told them would happen when they get this power? You shall be witnesses unto me. And you say, well, I want to get filled with the Holy Ghost so I can speak in other tongues and I can dreams and visions and I can interpret and do that. Jesus says, you shall be witnesses unto me. There's your primary reason for receiving the Holy Spirit in fullness. To be a witness unto him. That people may see the life of Christ in us. What a difference Pentecost made. And there that evening in that room, he breathed on them. Now some say this is, this is where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. Be that as it may. Be that as it may. He breathed on them. Signifying that a new life is coming into them. 
And it really was. And then on Pentecost, the fullness of that new life came upon them. And what a change. What a difference. You hardly recognize these people after Pentecost. She wouldn't. I mean, you just read the first few chapters of the book of Acts. I mean, you hardly believe these are the same people. Could these be the same people that was hiding behind closed doors? Afraid for their lives? And now they're coming out from behind closed doors. And they're going to have to face their fears and face their enemies. And Peter stands up and he goes out and he begins to preach to them with such boldness that it's breathtaking. When you read his sermon, he's so bold. This is the same man that was hiding. This is the same man that even denied he ever knew Jesus shortly before this. How is he able to do this? Because of this new power and this new peace and this new purpose that has come into his life. What a difference it made. I said there were four things. And when some of you, when I said that, you thought, four? It's going to take them a long time to get through four, didn't you? Now be honest, not what you thought. <laughs> I told her cell group the other night, I says, I heard a statement, I thought it was good. For a sermon to be immortal, it doesn't have to be eternal. I used to be guilty of that. <laughs> then he gave them a new privilege. He gave them a new privilege. In verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Ah. Now you see, this is a, a tricky verse. It has caused a lot of misunderstanding and controversy has been created with this verse. Some have felt that Jesus was singling out the apostles for a special office of providing forgiveness to sinners. And only the apostles and only then at that time. And particularly Peter. But remember there's more than just the apostles in the room that night. And Thomas, who was an apostle, wasn't even there. He was absent that first night. And yes, we can and we should, if somebody truly repents, offer them forgiveness if they sin against us. But we have no power either or authority either to cancel or confirm the sins of other human beings. Do you remember in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus healed the palsied man? And then he said to him, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribe said, Who can forgive sins but God only? And they were right. The only thing was they didn't recognize Jesus as being God the Son. They missed that part. But they were right in what they said. Who can forgive sins but God only? What this verse really means is that although we cannot provide forgiveness of sins, we can proclaim forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example. 
I can't stop somebody in the street and say, excuse me, I have the authority to tell you that all your sins are forgiven. I can't do that. Or I can't go and say, excuse me, I want to tell you, I have the authority to tell you that your sins are never forgiven and will never be forgiven. I have no authority to do that. Only God can do that. I'm not God. But if I meet somebody in the street and I get chatting to them and we get into a conversation and I begin to gossip the gospel to them, and begin to share Christ and what he did on the cross and how he alone died for us to forgive us our sins and that he is the savior of your soul and he is the one who can forgive your sins. And what if that person then said, do you know, I understand that now. I never before, but I do now. How would I come to Christ? How would I get saved? And what if I was to lead that person to Christ and what if he prayed and they were genuine and they understood and they truly repented that moment? Then I could say to them, on the authority of God's word, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. On the authority of God's word, I can say to you, you've received Christ as your savior, your sins are forgiven. Not because I've forgiven them, I couldn't do that, but because he has. Are you understanding me? Are you with me? We'd say, well, what if they listen me out and say, I don't believe that. That's fairy tales. Nah, I don't believe that stuff, that religious hocus pocus. Who believes that? And I could say, do you know what? You're still in your sins. And if you don't believe this, and you didn't receive Christ one day, you will die in your sins, and you'll be lost forever. I would have the authority and the right to say that according to God's word. So that's not given them or us carte blanche just to forgive everybody their sins. It's only God can do that. Now if somebody says something or does something individually against us and they come and say, look, I have done this or said this. Can you please forgive me? You can say yes. Peter says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times? Jesus, I didn't say seven times until 70 times seven. But what I'm saying is that I can't go to somebody and say, all your sins in the past, I forgive you them all. Even though they're nothing to do with me. Even though you never committed them against me. But I forgive you. I can't do that. Only God can do that. When you came to Christ and you bowed the knee to Jesus, he forgave you all of your sins. He wiped the slate clean, didn't he? No man could do that. Sure they couldn't. No man could absolve you from all of your sins in your life. Only the man with an ill prince in his hands can do that. Only the man who went to the cross can do that. But we have this wonderful privilege. And we have received this from Christ. That we can proclaim the gospel of Christ and the gospel of sins forgiven. And the provision of sins forgiven is through Christ alone, but the proclamation of sins forgiven, that's our job. We have the ministry of what? Of reconciliation. Bringing the sinner to Christ, the way we came to Christ. And when we do, and when it's real and genuine, 
then we can say in the authority of God's word that he forgives you all of your sins. And he gives you a new life. What a privilege is ours that we can do this. That we can go to men and women and we can share the gospel in the hope and in the belief that if they trust Christ as their Savior, that all of their past sins is gone. Wiped away. Gone forever. Amen? What a privilege is ours. And so that Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, he gave them those four things. New peace, new purpose, new power, and a new privilege. All of those four things belong to us today. And it makes a big difference in our lives, doesn't it? Let's pray. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more messages like this one, visit us online at www.mpc.org.uk. You'll also find a selection of informative videos at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal.